Hey there, welcome to Groundbreakers, a bi-weekly podcast that explores transformations in where, how, and why we work, and the intersection of DEIB within our workplaces and spaces. I'm your host, Shelley Wright, Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace. With each episode of Groundbreakers, I'll be talking to fascinating people, all of them groundbreakers in their industries. We won't have all of the answers, but we'll have some provocative and pretty entertaining conversations. We're going to have a lot of fun. We've got an exciting show for you all today. We'll be talking to Shelly Brown. Shelly is the Diversity Solutions Leader for Aon, and I totally love this guy. Welcome to Groundbreakers, Shelly. Well, thank you, Shelly. I do appreciate the chance to join you, and all the best to you for the success and breaking ground via your Groundbreakers podcast. Humbled and honored to be a part of your journey, and thank you for the gift of allowing me to be your first guest. So again, looking forward to this. Thanks, Shelly. It's really great to have you here. And and let me give our listeners a little background on you, Shelly. Shelly is the diversity solutions leader at Aon, where his clients, colleagues, and partners rely on his expertise and his insight into inclusive leadership, public policy, legislative affairs, and winning business strategies. He's a charter member of the firm's Global Inclusive Leadership Council and a champion of Aon's apprenticeship program, serving as the co-chair of that mentorship program. He's also a distinguished, decorated U.S. Army veteran who served during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I want to start here, Shelley. What was your MOS when you were in the Army? So I enlisted in the Missouri Army National Guard after high school. I had really no intention of getting into the military as I moved from high school to college. But I worked in a grocery store uh, for my first job. And of course, the Army recruiter kept coming through my line in the checkout. And, and he just, you know, <laughs> continued to to lean on me and lean on me. And so after graduating in May, I found myself um that September reporting for basic training at Fort McClellan, Alabama, and uh, spent uh, some good times getting to know uh, uh, Uncle Sam's Army and uh, <laughs> Uncle Sam's Army way of life. And then um, I, um, when I enlisted, I, I was enlisted in a signal uh, role, which was uh, signal intelligence and comm security, uh, communication security. So it was basically Radar O'Reilly for love those it, love it. Who, who are of a certain age or who really like uh, reruns and syndication. So uh, working in a telecommunications uh, cryptography role on the back of a rat rig, uh, on the back yeah. of, a, of a pickup truck in the military or a deuce and a half in the military. And um, that was where I got my start into the military experience. And then, of course, through college, uh, went through the ROTC program. And, you know, I said, hey, if I've already, uh, you know, raised my hand, I'm going to be in the military for a while. I might as well, uh, you know, continue on in that journey. And it's, it's uh, something that I, I, I cherish in my life's experience. Uh, I try and apply some of those lessons learned from uh, the military experience every day in my in my in my journey to still today. Wow, that's well. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, I want to share with our with our listeners a bit about how we came to know one another. Um, sure. I I basically stalked you, and I'm I'm raising my hand and <laughs> and admitting. Um, so when I when I endeavored into taking this position with Unispace, you know my my experience of all the things I'm doing at Unispace, supplier diversity was the one. I knew the least about, but I mean, I had a general understanding of the concept and the and the mandate around it. Um, so I began, you know, it was deep into the pandemic. I wasn't sleeping at night and I was spending a lot of time, you know, waking up at two in the morning and cruising around on the internet, um, looking, trying to learn about supplier diversity. And I landed on a couple of your videos and um, read about you and just, you really you really spoke to me, really resonated with me. So I began emailing you and it didn't take, I have to say, to your credit, it didn't take a lot of, I mean, maybe 10 emails or pings or LinkedIn or <laughs> I did do a little light stalking. Is, am I characterizing this correctly? Is this, is this the story of how we met or am I making this up? 
No, no. Um, I'm certain that as you checked in with different, you know, thought leaders and proven experts, um, somebody said to you, hey, I don't have time, but maybe you might want to talk to this person down at the end of the row. He might be able to help you out. Right. (laughs) And um, so I I really appreciate that sense of community amongst my my colleagues, peers and client partners. Um, I think also just the dynamic of you know, thinking about, you know, how we can continue to help one another. I was in a conversation twice this week about the notion of sending the elevator back down, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. as we all continue to grow, it's important to remind us that, uh, hey, send the elevator back down. Somebody's trying to, trying to continue to grow as well. And that, that, that euphemism takes on um, many different uh, uses, whether it's Hey, I've I've cracked the glass ceiling in a given, you know, role, function, company, industry, etc. Okay, now it's incumbent upon me to send that elevator back down and think about those who are continuing to to grow. And I'm just so pleased that you know I could be a part of your success. Thanks, Shelley. And and you definitely have sent the elevator back down for me and, and countless others, and which is why you're an icon and a pioneer in this industry. Um, one of the things, one of the segments I'm actually weirdly most excited about is uh, a segment called What's Your Weird? So I want to know, like, what is a factoid about you that I couldn't find if I Googled, I couldn't find about you if I read your bio? Um, what's a, what's a, an odd factoid that's, that's hard to find about you, Shelley? Um, so it's 19, 1980. Um, and I'm entering, you know, those, those years of, of thinking about dating and, you know, going through my journey as, as, um, as, as a young man. And my dad had a business in Chicago, as you know, originally from Missouri, and so uh, my mother and I had traveled to Chicago to visit with my dad, and we had a weeks-long commitment in the summer. Um, I think it was 1980, and we were in Chicago, actually in Arlington Heights, uh, which is a suburb just north of Chicago. And my dad's business is to own, train, race, and breed thoroughbred racehorses. Wow. And so the hotel that we were staying at was adjacent to Arlington Park. Uh, it's a, a, a racetrack uh, in, in Chicago. Well, lo and behold, as a frequent guest at that hotel, my dad had come to know some of the hotel management team and some of the, the, the relationships that he had built. Um, they gave him, you know, what we would now call um, loyalty status. Right. Yep. right? So in, the, in those days, there was no preferred guest you know, program, yeah. et cetera. But at the same point in time we were in the hotel, there was a concert in Chicago um, by the Jacksons. And I ended up having a, a bump run into Janet Jackson when I was leaving our hotel room on one end of the hotel floor going down to the ice machine and she was in the hallway, oh, I don't know, going to, you know, do whatever. And so we met twice and one time went to the game room in the hotel. What? That was my, I guess, uh, brush with greatness. So that would be a weird, un, unpublished factoid. Um, and so my family every now and then gives me, you know, a little get a little static about that. And it becomes a, you know, just a, a family joke that I they take a little liberty. Maybe I take a little liberty rarely in the storytelling that, you know, hey, I had a couple of dates with yeah, Jackson that, that's, when I was a teenage kid. That's what I was going to say, Shelley. That sounds an awful lot like a date. And I would no, I would characterize no it as that if I were you. <laughs> it's called poetic license, my friend. Um, that's okay. so. Right. That's really cool. I'm. I guess I'm. I guess I, that was 1980. Like the Jacksons yes. were like they were killing it, right? That was a that was yeah, a pretty big yeah. deal. All right. Yeah. That's that's a good yeah. one. That's a really good one. Um, there's a thousand questions I have, but I want to ask you about your mom. Um, you know, one of the things I that really resonated with me about your story and the way you do your work um, is the the mantra of what know your why. What's your why? And sure. um, I've carried that Shelley Brown mantra into our work, our DEIB work at Unispace. And everyone in our company knows that 
that's something we talk about is making sure we understand our why. And when I think about your story and, and, and your trajectory and your journey, um, I know your, your mom was a big part of your why. And can you talk a little bit about the work that she did back in, back in Missouri? Um, I, was it in Jeff City? I presume it was. That's where, um, you know, a lot, a lot of that activity was happening. But can you talk a little bit about your mom and how she influenced your and, and empowered you to, to be in this space and to kind of push the edges? Sure. In Missouri, our family business is politics and government. So I worked my first election when I was seven. And my job was to stuff envelopes and uh, tie ribbon on balloons. And in those days, I'm again going to date myself, but cars had an antenna, Uh, right? Okay, so you would go to the grocery store and you'd come back from, you know, your trip inside the grocery store and there'd be a balloon on your car. Right. And the balloon would say, vote for, you know, whatever candidate name. Right. And or maybe there would be an envelope or a flyer on your windshield. You know, candidate Mm -hmm. is uh, got a campaign rally please come out. And so it was my job to stuff envelopes, tie the ribbon on the balloons, um, you know, just do whatever things that, you know, a seven-year-old kid who was, you know, born into a family who was active in different dynamics of politics and and civil rights uh, movements. And, And I'm originally from Kansas City. And so that's how I got my start. So, Around the family dinner table is my mother talking about politics and government. She was active in city of Kansas City government and then later took an appointment in uh, state government. Well, in Missouri at the same point in time, uh, thoroughbred horse racing was not legal. The nearest uh, thoroughbred horse racing facilities were in Omaha yeah, or yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Um, my mother and her career established the first Office of Civil Rights for the state of Missouri. So investigating age, race, sex, gender discrimination in the workplace. Later, she um, championed the implementation of the ADA, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, across the state of Missouri. So I'm seeing all of this dynamic play out. And then in the summers, as I got older, I would go to Chicago or different places and work with my dad. And I will tell you, that the backside of the racetrack is that's a long day. Yeah. yeah. That's a tough day. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm living primarily, you know, a, a kid uh, going through, you know, a school experience and, you know, I'd say a humble, modest, middle income family experience. And then and some weekends I would, you know, have a different experience by helping my dad run his business on the backside of a racetrack. Um, and so what a dichotomy, yeah. but it gave me an appreciation for the diversity yeah. uh, in, in life's journey. And yeah. that's, that's a little bit what kind of got me influenced. I saw my mom thinking about workforce diversity, workplace diversity. Mm -hmm. I saw my dad's experience as an entrepreneur. I I need to make money. I've got to bring in clients. I've got to maintain my business and I've got to grow my business. Yeah. And, and the intersection of your parents' um, work streams, again, really, that is supplier diversity. That is, you know, it didn't exist, you know, it was just, uh, it was a new concept back then. Um, but it hadn't made its way uh, to most places. But when you think about your mom's kind of intentionality and mindfulness and her policy work to, um, you know, to create access and opportunity to, you know, historically under underserved uh, communities. Um, I want to move on to the discipline of supplier diversity. And I want to know um, a little bit about how long you've been in your role at Aon and how it's changed since you've been there. And, um, and then I want to talk about myth busting. Okay. All right. So I've been with Aon for about five and a half years. I joined in the third quarter, um, or excuse me, the fourth quarter of 2016. I've been in this space since 1996. Um, I'm doing some lobbying work in, in Missouri, and I got a call to come to the governor's office uh, the governor, who I'd known since I was maybe nine, ten years old, 
um, hey, you've got a couple of businesses going. Tell me about those businesses. And it's the governor, his chief of staff, and my mother. By that time, she had grown in her in her state government career. And he says, I'd like you to, you know, take take a responsibility and grow our state of Missouri's minority and women business purchasing organization. And you only get a chance to tell a governor no once, right? So that's how I got started in this space. And I've just continued on in the public sector and the private sector. Um, passion area for me, uh, it's definitely an enabler of economic development. And that's been constant like K all the way through the Aon experience. Um, you know, just a fantastic leadership team um, at Aon. It, it, it certainly is. It, it's empowering to, to work in an organization where you can think about dynamics within the professional services industry where you can have visible vocal leaders talk about the different dynamics of bringing access to capital, which is a definite enabler around bringing small and diverse businesses forward, but then also thinking about um, underserved communities. So I'm fortunate that we get strong support from our chief procurement officer to our chief commercial officer as well, thinking about how we bring solutions to clients, and then bring those diverse partners and those diverse business owners often bring a diverse community forward as well. Um, so there's a philanthropic strategy yeah. to it. There is a there is a, uh, a brand building and storytelling component to it, certainly. But then there's also how do we grow the business And then how do we help those who buy to enable growth of the business to buy from small and diverse owned businesses? Shelly, yeah, can I ask you a question about how do you kind of embed the concept beyond beyond just kind of the nomenclature of supplier diversity and something about black and brown and something about queer and something about about women? Is that the big lift is kind of embedding a deeper kind of more philosophical why to the team? Sure. So in the aggregate, um, both internal clients, my colleagues that I work with, and hopefully help them be successful, and then the client externally um, all have differing expectations, right? Um, We want to retain and we want to grow business as a business enterprise, and then, of course, we want to help, you know, our clients with unmet needs and, you know, try and build better decisions for them so that they can make the right decisions for their business. Well, one of the things that we do tap into is um, um, communication, driving awareness on what the strategy is and, and then why is the strategy a factor Um, So whether it's an internal colleague conversation to help them understand a dynamic of doing business differently, or maybe it's in a situation where I do have a relationship with the client and I'm able to distill that unique client expectation to a colleague that they may not have considered or been exposed to previously. Um, so it's understanding the dynamic, for example, if it's a, a municipal or a state government agency, as I mentioned before, they want to reinvest those tax dollars in their local businesses primarily. Um, but that may not be a dynamic that a colleague have, has had exposure to. So helping them understand that dynamic of why. Yeah. And then after we get past that, then how do we accomplish that, right? So um, didn't didn't crack the code here. I love the way Simon Sinek says, start with why. Um, from there, I think about what, and then I try and tackle how, mm. often as opposed to what and how, and then maybe why right. gets considered later on. Um, so that's, that's a strategy that we try and apply, we try and apply consistently. And, um, sometimes we've got a long ramp of, of kind of, of onboarding and, and building that relationship. Sometimes it's, it's compressed, got an RFP, want to respond to this within a, a certain amount of time. So 
one of the things we, we joke about around the desk is I can build you a space shuttle. Uh, I can build it for you in three days. I may not want to fly on it with you, but I can build one with you. Right, right. Or we can be very thoughtful and, and integrate it into a, a six-month, a one-year client plan where we can be very intentional, very thoughtful in our approach. Yeah. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Yeah, that's really helpful and, and fascinating. Um, as we as we dig in and kind of explore supplier diversity at Unispace, um, one of the first things you said to me is, thank God, Shelly, there's a business case for supplier diversity. Um, because it takes it takes a while. Like you said, there's sometimes a long ramp and sometimes a, a short ramp. But can you talk a little bit about the the business case? Um, we know it's the right thing to do. Um, can you talk about the fact that supplier diversity is the smart thing to do? I'll share a little of my secret sauce with you, but you promise you won't tell. I won't tell. Okay? It's just between you and me, Shelley. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so supplier diversity is actually the function or the actually it's a process. But the broader strategy is a dynamic of economic inclusion and economic inclusion with respect to procurement activities, buying activities are enabled by a set of best practices around supplier diversity. So this dynamic of economic inclusion is a broad, comprehensive strategy that says as a corporation or a large buying entity in a given community, I have a fiduciary responsibility to contribute to growth. And how am I able, how am I enabling that to happen through, you know, the wages that I pay my employees who live in a given community who pay tax in a community or the trade and commerce that I do with clients in that given community but then also the dynamic of what are we doing with those who help enable our growth through those third-party purchases. One of the big factors that I really appreciated in 2019 was a gentleman by the name of Larry Fink in his BlackRock letter to shareholders and to CEOs in 2019 talked about, maybe we need to think about the role or purpose of a corporation a little differently. And it not only looked at the, the Friedman example of corporations' primary goal is to drive return for its shareholders. Right. In this discussion, Mr. Fink widened that lens to say stakeholders, community, yeah. colleagues, shareholders, and your supplier partners. And so that was an enabling factor for me to continue to go back and work on my own, my own learning to, to, to enrich the strategy that we're trying to deploy at Aon. Uh, certainly the business roundtable and its adoption of a similar strategy mm -hmm. and, and the business roundtable, as you know, is a group of CEOs of leading corporations and, you know, those CEOs getting together collectively and said, hmm, okay, there's something here. Let's tap into that. Let's energize that was definitely something that, you know, excited the, the, the dynamics that we're thinking about within the firm and the way we're acting accordingly as we build our growth strategy around inclusive leadership, whether that's inclusive people leadership and talent development. So all things workforce, yeah. workplace diversity, but then it shows up in other areas. And in this instance, it happens to show up with where we work with our chief procurement officer and our chief commercial officer. Yeah. I mean, to that point, what what in your in your view is the role, the responsibility of corporate entities in terms of civil rights, racial justice, uh, racial equity? I mean, certainly the paradigm has, has shifted right in the past couple of years. But what what are we all agreeing now that that a company who doesn't have their eye on this ball is behind? Um, I, I don't know that I, I can say that uh, confidently with data, um, but I, I am glad to see new entrants or re-energized entrants into the conversation around leadership, inclusion, and, and growth. 
Um, it's not an or proposition. It's an and proposition. Um, I can grow performance with small businesses and it not be, um, uh, it not present a situation where it costs me more money to do business. So yeah. now I guess segueing into your MythBuster discussion, yeah. uh, it costs more money to work with smaller businesses or or minority or women businesses, et cetera. Um, I think some of those dynamics, um, um, it's, it's maybe easy to kind of rush past that. But if you dig in and do some diligence, you might find that smaller businesses are able to get to market with speed. They're able to innovate and pivot easier and more quickly than a larger organization might. Um, the dynamics of change is maybe able to be absorbed more quickly in a smaller yeah. enterprise yeah. and then be able to pivot accordingly. Um, I think that also shows up when you see investors are willing to get in on startup uh, enterprises and find ways to innovate and bring speed to market uh, in whatever their product or service uh, solution might be. Yeah, that that kind of dovetails nicely into a, another question I have about, you know, you were talking about access to capital earlier. And it, it, it kind of keeps, keeps me up at night, uh, honestly, about, you know, we, we tell certain underserved and, and underrepresented populations, you know, that we, that we want to work with them, but then, then they're lacking some capital to kind of get them fit for purpose. Um, can you talk about initiatives maybe that you've seen, um, with, you know, efficacy who are addressing access to capital? And then can you talk, um, you know, I'm really concerned about the ways that industries, um, primarily Unispace, because I'm responsible here, but how we our pay structures for our diverse vendors. Um, you know, we can't expect diverse vendors to be floating loans to to, to companies. Um, we need to pay them quickly. Can you talk a little bit about your view on that and and that access to capital piece? Sure thing. Um, one of the things that I've had exposure to is an organization called the National Minority Supplier Development Council, or NMSDC. And this organization was established in 1972. I've had the privilege and honor of sitting on its board of directors in the past. Um, it was born out of the civil rights uh, struggle and challenge, the 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 68 riots in Chicago spurred a discussion around Chicago-based businesses, which then put in, in action a minority procurement event around corporations with minority-owned businesses. And then four years later, the National Minority Supplier Development Council was established in 1972. And through that journey, that organization has recognized corporations for peak performance with working uh, in their, their organization to grow spend with minority-owned businesses. And keep in mind, they're not just small businesses. There are some very large businesses uh, mm -hmm. who have that minor, minority business credential. But the NMSDC also put in motion call, uh, an organization, or actually, excuse me, called the Business Consortium Fund, where they were in, in essence, um, a micro lending right. uh, entity. Then I began to see corporations who were winning reward and recognition activities within NMSDC detail their efforts to maybe set up a micro lending program or a small business uh, loan um, incubator uh, dynamic within their organization. Right. I think as those client conversations and those brand conversations that says, we're, we're a titan of industry, but we're also working with, you know, small and diverse businesses. Well, here are some of the things that we're doing to complement our brand. And so that access to capital arm gets fed there. Certainly, uh, the federal legislation a few years ago that says if you are a large federal government contractor, we'd like you to abide by a prompt pay provision that says working on federal projects, <clears throat> pardon me, as you bring small businesses with you, we expect you to pay them in a timely manner. And then those flow down provisions to 
those corporations' supply chains. That's that's very helpful. So government giving the nudge or reward recognition processes, uh, acknowledging the unique approach to drive access to capital, Um, all the way through some of the dynamics that I see uh, today. You know, I'm really pleased to share, you know, just our personal experience at Aon, uh, where we like many corporations during the pandemic experience, we started thinking about what's the best things that we need to do to ensure, you know, that we're able to continue our operations, take care of our colleagues, but also be a good steward to our partners who help us with our business. And we were able to sustain our payment terms for us, our known small and diverse business partners. That That's so critical when the sun is shining, but certainly in the difficult days of a pandemic, yep. you need to have that provision in place. Uh, so whether I've seen it in legislation, I've seen it in recognition reward, or I've seen us actually do something uh, to sustain those relationships uh, within the firm, I- I'm very pleased at what kinds of things that we're doing and that it's also becoming an expected engagement way of doing business. That's so cool. I want to ask you a question, Shelley Brown. What is C-Q-D-K-L-T. It's a formula. It's proprietary to you. What is it? Okay, so the formula here. So C-Q-D, <laughs> you're funny. Uh, C-Q-D is cost, quality, and delivery divided by no like, and trust. And um, I'll start with the difficult part first, and it's not cost, quality, and delivery. The difficult part mm. is the no like, and trust. Uh, The reason I say I I believe it's the difficult part is, um, yes, through social media, LinkedIn, we have so many different on ramps to, you know, other people's lives. And thanks for being one of those six people who who look at my stuff. Um, And, you know, that dynamic of of no like and trust is a compliment to your personal brand, much like I just described. What I do is not who I am. But at the top of our talk about my mom's experience and my dad's experience, so much of what they did informed what I do and has influenced Mm -hmm. who I am. The trapping of the no like and trust shows up and it's difficult to get out of out of that boundary in that when we think about injecting diversity, whether it's in recruit, retain and develop strategies within an organization, we are often attracted to people that we know and we know them primarily because we may have worked with them or we see each other in each other. So we have agency to one another, which then leads to a like situation. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're professional colleagues, but you know, we want to be able to know and like, which is underpinned by trust. And when you challenge that dynamic to say, let's think differently about recruit, retain, and develop strategies, the difficult part is to permeate that boundary or that gate that we have leaned on and has become um, just a standard way of, of walking and talking for us. Well, it's somebody I know, like, and trust. And then to be able to yeah. inject change into that. The, the the numerator around cost, quality, and delivery um, is it, it's so important because at, at Aon or any organization that I've represented in this space, we're not going to do business with someone if they're not cost competitive, if they mm-hmm. don't have a strong commitment to quality or excellence in their product or their service or their delivery. But when you think about the delivery dynamic is – how how do you how do you push from A to B across the desk, and how does that delivery dynamic yep. influence your quality? And if you haven't gone through cost management strategies, that impacts your quality and ultimately your yep. delivery. That I think in in these dynamics, especially on workplace culture and workforce representation, mm-hmm. the no like and trust is is the difficult part. The cost quality of delivery to me is on par with being able to go out and find a diverse partner. That's not hard to do. Uh, A practitioner in the space has a community that they can pull on to say, hey, who do you work with? Can I get a coffee chat with that supplier? I'm looking to make an investment in that same space as well. 
I love it. I think you need T-shirts, Shelly, <laughs> with your formula on it. No, it's so great. And it's so, um, yeah, as I, as I kind of understood the formula, um, I didn't think about the no like, and trust being the most difficult, you know, as you, to use your language to permeate that. Um, but th- that makes sense. I mean, that's the, that's that, that's that muscle memory that remains. Um, and that's where, you know, unconscious biases, you know, that's, it's rife for, for that kind of complexity. And I'm just, you know, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. And, and I could talk about this stuff all day with you. Um, I want to, I want to kind of do a slight pivot into something somewhat related. Um, the conversation around the Me Too movement. We're having a lot of conversations in, in our industry about, you know, um, black and brown people and the queer community and women. And Me Too seemed to kind of elevate the the conversations around women and parity and, um, you know, gender pay, pay gaps and pay equality. I ha- If I've talked to one guy, I've talked to 30 men who have confided in me, and I'm really glad that they do. Um, and they've shared with me that they feel really scared and really nervous to, you know, mess up. And, and many of them have even said, we feel like we're kind of under siege. Um, can you dig into this? And, and I, and I know you can't speak for all men. Um, but how do you, if, if you're me, if you're a diversity, uh, pr- a practitioner of DEIB, and you're having conversations with colleagues, and it and it's my job to help create a safe space for them to feel like, you know, um, that we can learn together and grow together. How would you? What's your best guidance on how I can create those safe spaces and 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 kind of accelerate the advancement of women in spaces where women haven't historically been kind of um, leading? Able to I, I love the question. I think, um, number one, you have to be intentional. Um, you have to be intentional to, to make it clear that there is a safe comfort zone to have a vulnerable, difficult conversation. If, if that's not in place and all participants um, aren't aware of those ground rules. I don't know that you get people off the sideline and into the mm-hmm. into the dance to be vulnerable and to be transparent. Um, I had the opportunity in in my journey to work in the construction business on some publicly funded projects, and those publicly funded projects not only wanted small, diverse businesses, they wanted a diverse workforce. And mm-hmm. so um, those publicly funded projects um, had transparency in the oversight process to ensure that both of those goals were being achieved. And so that level of intentionality caused developers, general contractors, uh, different service groups to be intentional about their approach to pursue those projects. Because if you weren't competitive in those two areas, it was mm-hmm. equally as impactful as not being competitive from a cost or a quality standpoint, et cetera. Um, so the dynamic of having women in construction um, I think there are some fantastic organizations that are out there. I'd be glad to share a couple names with you uh, so yeah. that as you and your colleagues are thinking about how to drive and advance uh, impact and change around women and gender diversity um, in, in the construction industry, um, I hope that, hope that would be helpful to you. Yeah, thanks for that, Shelley. Um, intention is um, is should be the North star and 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 again i you are one of a few teachers and mentors um who have who have kind of drilled that into me and and again i've carried that flag into our work at at unispace you've you've 
affected greatly um, the work we're doing at Unispace. And 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 I got to say, it's been so heartening. Like we were t- you were talking before about light bulb moments with team members. I have had so many hard, you know, uh, emotional conversations with my team members o- over the past year plus, and to actually watch them evolve on this journey and you know, have a grasp of the language and to be, you know, taking client-facing meetings and talking about DEIB um, proactively and, you know, that as a value at Unispace and watching them develop what I call swagger around the concepts. It's really, really gratifying. And I think that the intention that we set early on is has been a great driver of that, of, uh, uh, certainly a, a force multiplier. Um, Shelley, in the skills that you perform on a daily basis at Aon, what is the skill that comes most naturally to you? And what is the skill that has required you to work harder? And, and you know, what, what are those two skills? So when I stepped in the door, I did not have industry expertise around risk, retirement, and health benefits. Um, as a consumer, certainly. Um, yeah. Uh, I did, but keep in mind, uh, Aon's in the commercial risk business. So uh, I'm an individual consumer, and I was not, uh, you know, touching their product and service. Uh, from a, a health uh, benefits standpoint, uh, I certainly was familiar. And then from a retirement uh, and investment consulting perspective, but again, as a consumer, so it gave me a chance to to build my network of relationships in the firm and ask a thousand questions. Um, so I'd like to think I've gotten better at my fact finding process through asking Mm. different questions to get to, um, quickly and succinctly understand the opportunity moments of vulnerability, moments of soft ground and where, uh, myself and my team can be helpful. Um, at the same time, I think, um, Um, I remember sitting in a business resource group conversation pre-COVID about the dynamics of the word apathy, sympathy, and empathy. And certainly Mm -hmm. as a result of COVID, the the dynamic of of empathy is a, a more broadly shared concept. Um. Pre-COVID, yeah. sympathy. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear about your loss or, wow, you stubbed your toe. I hope you're okay. Yeah. And, you know, in a collegial mm-hmm. environment, um, not so much about apathy. You know, that's that's kind of a, a foreign concept, right? We don't want to come together and be apathetic to each other. How can you do the, the same? Uh, Post-COVID, I've also seen that, you know, when anxiety goes up, empathy goes down and, and just mm-hmm. kind of having a different appreciation for the word and the experiences loaded into being empathetic. Um, I hope that's, that's helpful. Yeah, it, no, it really is. I'm glad you, you kind of, the, the, when anxieties go up, empathy goes down, you, you know, I think that's right, and I think that we have been stress test, right? Stress tested, as it were, um, and it strikes me that 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 you would cite kind of your um, appreciation for all of that as something you've had to work at. That seems like the the skill that comes most naturally to you, the Shelley Brown that I know. Um, and I'm not, you know, no response necessary, but but it does make me think about your personal evolution and how comfortable you have felt to express these, you know, you're, you're an emotional person, a person. Um, you're also very measured, you know, your military experience, um, you know, certainly, uh, shaped you in a lot of ways. But I think about when you were in the military, did you stick out like a sore thumb? I want to know the difference in culture that you experienced in the military, um, versus in corporate spaces, what was different? And what do you find to be almost exactly the same? Can you can you put your finger on that? Sure. So um, 
the framing is so important because my military experience, I was primarily in my 20s, early 30s. And so inherently in that age group, that, that sense of invincibility combined with I had some hardware up here and I had some hardware mm-hmm. up here and um, combined with, you know, doing crazy things for for a job and, you know, crazy things and helicopters and all kinds of fun stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, here's what I see that is very similar. Um being united around the same goal or mission. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and ultimately at the, at the top of the, um, the top of the balance sheet, all the way to the bottom of the balance sheet in the corporate experience. Um, you know, all I want to do is win, 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 no matter what. I think yeah. that's the, the lyrics to the song, right? <laughs> um, you know, when in Rome, I'm trying to appeal to the musician in yeah. you, right? Yeah. So we want a strong top line. We want to be efficient all the way to the bottom line. So I want to win. And then that I kind of parlay that in the conversation with colleagues that says, hey, regardless of what you do for the firm, everybody that wears an Aon badge is in sales because we want a strong top line and we want mm-hmm. a strong bottom line. So what can we do to figure out ways where we can be united in our mission to win? Mm-hmm. And, and then in the military experience, um, same kind of thing. You know, we've got an objective. It's a common goal. Uh, we're united in what we're trying to get done. And when we don't abide by those guiding principles, we, we oftentimes fail on the, uh, the achievement of the mission. Now, certainly the, the uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, there's no uniform, <laughs> unitary, uniform Code of Military Justice within the corporate world. Uh, things like spree de corps, valor, uh, mean things different in a military experience that mm-hmm. you don't get. And I miss bold, underlined in the civilian world. I miss that. Um, uh, and yeah. so that sometimes is a challenge just for me and my journey and my experience. Um, I, I hope that answers your question. No, it it, it does. And that really kind of hits me. Where I live, I, yeah, I, I, my one, my next question to you was going to be, what do you miss about your military experience? And and you just naturally went into it. Um, you know, the mission-driven kind of mandates um, winning together for me in my life has always felt more powerful than you know doing something in a silo. I you know I grew up on a farm. I grew, you know, I played organized sports and um, the sports in which I was surrounded with team members always just felt, you know, much more gratifying. And and even kind of having a kind of pedestrian view of military folks and, and for our listeners out there who may not know a lot about me, um, I would, you know, have a history in entertainment and I've uh, been lucky to entertain the troops in a lot of really interesting places around the planet in uh, active military zones and non-active military zones. And just being in country 10 days uh, embedded with the troops, y- you you feel that, you know, as a, you know, a, con- a chick country music singer. After I, I miss it when I leave, I'm, I, I, it doesn't take long for me to kind of feel like I'm part of something. And part of a, you know, there are, there are lines that aren't crossed in the military. And I know there are lines that are crossed that shouldn't be crossed sometimes um, in terms of, you know, integrity and valor and values that you're talking about, Shelley. But it's, it's, um, it doesn't take long to feel like you're part of a, a machine that has a greater purpose and it's well, intoxicating. I think- I, I, and I don't no, know. I, I was just going to say, I think that experience shows up in the civilian yeah. world when you have colleagues who say, oh, you attended whatever school. So did I. When were you there? Did you have so-and-so for right. whatever class? Or, you know, I, I went through this school. What school did you go through at, you know, at that particular university? Or I'm in this fraternity. I'm in that sorority. Yeah. So those experiences take you back to that same kind of kind of moment and that same kind of connectedness, Right. So not to say that one doesn't have it represented uh, for another. Um, I have some friends who went to uh, U.S. Military Academy, uh, West Point, 
And so they share an experience that I'll never have, even though we were all in the military, right? Um, so certainly have an appreciation yeah. for that. Yeah, I mean it, it's it it it's great to be a part of a team, and and you know I'm and we're, I'm experiencing that at Unispace, and it's um you know it's it's fun to win together. So we're going to do something called Fire Round, and it's not where we where you get fired. It's uh, a series of rapid fire questions, and I don't want you to take a lot of time to answer these. Okay, promise me you're okay. just gonna like stream of consciousness. Here we go: coffee or tea? Tea. Pants or sweatpants? Yes. Cuban cigars or Dominican cigars? When possible, Cuban. Favorite part of hybrid working? Flexibility. Least favorite part of hybrid working? Uh, The cold side of autonomy, Mm. um, where I'm not able to be connected and and engage and and have that, that texture to collegial conversations and and engagements with partners and clients. Miss that. Yeah. Future of work, hopeless or hopeful? Hopeful. That's just who you are. Shelly Brown, I just want to thank you for being such a trooper to be our first guest of Groundbreakers. Um, You're you're a mensch. You're a lovely man. You're a um, a, a great teacher, and uh, you're really good at talking on on podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And and I just, I, I, I'd ask for you to kind of leave us with, you're an inspirational speaker. And I, and these are complicated times. Um, you know, things that are happening around the globe are complicated and disturbing and unsettling. Um, I find a lot of comfort in your, in your, in your approach and your vision and your philosophy, I'm going to ask you to kind of close us out today um, with any closing remarks you'd like to share with us. But again, Shelley, thank you so much. I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Well, Shelley, thank you so much. I do appreciate the chance to be a part of your success journey and to be a part of this uh, Groundbreakers series. So I'll definitely uh, keep my eyes and ears tuned in as this continues to grow to such a fantastic legacy. Um, thank you. I try, I try, I try, and sometimes I don't hit the mark, but I try to treat everybody like every day is their birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that, you know, I can be helpful to somebody along the way and, you know, as they're continuing to grow that they don't forget to send the elevator back down. Thanks for tuning into Groundbreakers, y'all. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to the the behind-the-scenes folks that share my passion and vision for our Groundbreakers series. Writer and producer, Caroline Jones. Engineer, Michael Pelliquin. And the Airs Next and Unispace teams. Despite the many ways our careers and lives may differ, we are all affected by how our environments impact diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We all have so much to learn from one another, and I appreciate you taking this ride with me. Don't forget to subscribe to Groundbreakers. Tune in and share with your colleagues, your friends, and your families. Talk soon.